Father, we pray that you would open the ears of our spiritual hearing, that we might behold your word, that it might transform us from the inside. We pray that you would take the scriptures and write them upon the tables of our hearts, so that our spiritual sight might be renewed, and our blind eye or eyes once blind to the truth and the glory of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, might be opened to realize the fullness of His manifest revelation in His Holy Word. And I pray that our affections, the things that we desire, look forward to, our sources of motivation, Lord, the things that we love and value and treasure most, I pray that they would be focused ever more so upon the expectation of the gospel fully realized in Your grace that is yet forthcoming and what You have planned for the future of those who love and trust you and place their hope in the shed blood of Jesus Christ for their salvation. I pray, Lord, that as you do this corrective work, ever more so changing us, shaping us, sanctifying us into into Christ's image, I pray that you would use our testimony to reach the lost with the light of the gospel, of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ, and that as your name is lifted up and upon the praises of your people and upon their confession, Lord, may there be a suitable throne for your glory, and upon this manifest presence of the Lord among your people, we pray that more would bow the knee before Jesus Christ, repent of their sin, turn and believe. Now, Lord, as we turn to your scriptures, we beg you, Holy Spirit, to open the ears again and eyes of our hearing and our sight, that we might behold your holiness herein contained, and may it equip your church for the work of the ministry. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Praise the Lord. This morning we turn in our communion series to 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 13 through 21. 1 Peter chapter 1, 13 through 21 will be our primary text today. The title of this morning's message is Exile Living, or you could say Life as an Exile. And we'll cover just a little bit of review and context to give us a sense of what we mean by that title, Exile Living, in a moment. The aim of this morning's message is to equip the church to stand when tested. I believe that this is one of the primary focuses of Peter in primary emphases and theme in his book and his series of letters to the churches, that through these instructions of the application of the gospel for this first wave of believers and all who would follow that he would provide for them through his apostolic instruction the sufficient equipping for the church to stand even when tested, even tested unto death itself in the case of some eras of persecution where martyrdom was the cost of faithfulness. So with your Bible open, would you stand with me once again out of reverence for God's word this morning and let us behold his holy word together. Listen as the Word of God is proclaimed in your hearing today, 1 Peter 1, 13-21. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as He who calls you called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. Verse 17, and if you call on him as father who judges impartially, according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear 
through the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in these last times for your sake, and through him, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. This is the word of God. You may be seated. Life as an exile, exile living. So young people, pop quiz for you. Can you remind us uh, who Peter writes his epistle to? He calls believers by two words. What does Peter call believers in, in, his, in his letter to the churches? Do you remember? That is correct. Elect exiles. One or two more questions along those lines. If you are a believer in this room, you are elect because... So elect because what, kids? Because Jesus has bought us with his blood? Excellent answer, Ezra. Anyone else? Uh, further uh, insight into election? We are called elect because God has chosen us, someone said. Elected us? Very good. So believers are elect because God has chosen us. And he has done so, as we have heard, on the basis of the purchasing power of his own blood. Next word, exiles. We are exiles because... Anyone finish that sentence? We are exiles because... (laughs) Good good answer to a different question. Over here I hear uh, because we're in a different country. Is that... Yes, an exile is someone who is far from home. So think of it this way, kids. We are elect because God has chosen us. We're exiles because we are far from home. So that's the basic term that Peter uses to address his epistle in verse 1 of chapter 1. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Asia, and Bithynia. So this list of five countries or regions is where the people came from. But Peter acknowledges that their most important citizenship no longer is bound to these countries exclusively. That is to say... An elect exile is no longer home in Pontius. He no longer finds his ultimate and most uh, secure and substantial identity in Galatia. We are no longer Cappadocians um, at, at the end of the day, but we belong to a different country entirely. We are Christians. We belong to the New Jerusalem. We look forward to a city whose founder and designer and architect, as Abram and the author of Hebrews echoes, is God himself. We're no longer Asians, Bithynians, Americans first and foremost, but we belong to Jesus Christ. And so if we are thereby exiles living in a place far from home, and if there are cultural pressures and otherwise on us to conform us to the image of a Galatian, a Cappadocian, an Asian, a Bithynian, or an American, and that places some test upon us and our faithfulness and commitment to Jesus Christ, then Peter knows we and those to whom he writes need to understand how to live as a stranger in the land which we abide right now. How to live as an exile. What does exile living look like? In verses 10 through 12 of 1 Peter 1, which we covered in our last message from this book, 
Peter shapes the perspective of his readers, reminding them of their privileged place in covenant history. So he's pointing to them the precious treasure of the gospel, and he's contrasting what we realize in the revelation of the New Testament with what has gone before. He says, concerning this salvation, verse 10, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. So again, Peter shapes the perspective of his readers, reminding them of their privileged place in God's history. Before the incarnation, Christians and believers and prophets, even those who wrote the scriptures, had a shadow and a type and an indication and prophecies of who Christ would be. But they didn't have the same level of revelation via fulfillment that we have after Christ has come and the canon, that is, the complete work of God's Word is finished. That is to say, post-incarnation Christians, Christians who trust, believers who trust in the Lord after Christ has come and died for our sins and is resurrected and ascended, we are the heirs of revelation that is the envy of prophets and angels. So you have an understanding of the gospel that was the envy of the prophets and is the envy of the angels, if you will. He emphasizes, Peter does, furthermore, that the coming sufferings and subsequent glories of Jesus Christ the Messiah captivated the imagination and the spiritual affections of our forebears in the faith. So these thoughts of who would the Messiah be and how would his sufferings secure our redemption and what glories would God have in store for him after he has finished his work, these kinds of meditations prove sufficient to keep them waiting faithfully despite the challenges of their day. The expectation of the coming Messiah kept Abram faithful. Even though he stumbled, he did not ultimately fall. The Lord kept him through these thoughts of what would the Messiah be like? What would he, how would he accomplish his work? Who would that significant son through my lineage ultimately be? The Lord kept Elijah, the prophet of old, when he was proclaiming to a people a, a sinful generation. Repent and turn, place faith in the hope that is to come. The, these promises, the, subsequent, the sufferings and subsequent glories of Christ yet on the horizon captivated the imagination and the spiritual affections. That means the desires, the hopes, and the anticipation of our forefathers in the faith. And these meditations proved sufficient to keep them waiting faithfully, even though they were tested. Think of an example, and for exact, uh, to be exact, in the book of Daniel. Daniel and his three friends. Uh, young people, what were Daniel's three friends' names? Anyone remember? It was Daniel, and then who else was with him in Babylon? Anyone remember? Shad. Shad. Daniel? Shadrach. There you go. Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Think of them by way of examples. Young Hebrews, conquered by the internationally influential empire of Babylon. So their land, Israel has been overrun, they are taken prisoner, and now they're being led away to serve in the courts of a pagan king. They are led away from their familiar surroundings of family, cultural heritage, Sabbath worship, temple sacrifices, a holy land, scriptural instruction, like-minded countrymen, and so on. And they're going in the intention of their conquerors, their captors, 
They're going to be re-educated in the high courts of a foreign land, a foreign people, a foreign language, foreign religion, culture, city, kingdom, and worldview. How in the world are they supposed to survive this intense pressure upon them? What would exile living look like for Daniel and his three friends? How could they possibly hope to survive these comprehensive, saturating influences of full Babylonian cultural immersion via exile? Did they survive? They certainly did. And they survived by one account or by an by uh, one perspective on far less to go on by way of spirit, uh, scriptural revelation than we have today. So Peter's point in part is that their faith indeed survived on far less resources than we are privileged to access. So, saints, in this room, within the hearing of Peter's words even today, ground your hope in the glories of Christ revealed in His gospel work accomplished and the forthcoming glories of His kingdom consummation and thereby find your own equipping to stand when tested. By way of application, do you, lament, do you listen to the news? Do you watch you know, uh, things come across the internet and think to yourself, man, things have never been darker. I can't believe the boldness with which sin is celebrated in our culture. I can't believe the degradation and slide of, you know, the sinfulness that surrounds us in this wicked land. And do you ever think to yourself, how will my children survive in a culture that is so thoroughly pagan now and is so openly hostile to the Christian worldview? Do you ever fear for your own faithfulness, thinking to yourself, would I be able to stand if persecution increases, if I was to be tortured or even killed for my faith? If I were to face those pressures, those tests, that challenge, could I stand? Well, if our forefathers in the faith stood when tested by clinging to the promises of the Messiah on the horizon, how much more can we stand if we cling to the promises of the Messiah, Jesus Christ, who has come. These are keys to exile living. Not just endurance, but thriving. Here's the heading. The elect exile endures, or he could add, thrives. His endurance is tied to three things. Number one, the orientation of his soul. The elect exile's endurance is tied to the orientation of his soul. There's three orientations in our text today, you could say. Sober-mindedness, holiness, and fear. So when the elect exile is sober mind, has a sober mind, he's walking in holiness, and he has a fear of the Lord, his, he will endure. The second thing that elect exile's endurance is tied to, sufficient motive forces. So this would be sources from which we draw inspiration, motives. There are three in, the text, in our text as well. Forthcoming grace, so grace on the horizon, grace in the future. Secondly, the holiness of God. And thirdly, our ransom price. So elect exiles, endurance is tied to the orientation of our soul, sufficient motive forces. And finally, third major point this morning, the object of our faith. This would be Christ the spotless lamb, Christ surpassing time, and Christ surpassing death. These are the sources from uh, from which we can draw great endurance, resources to stand when tested. So let's look at them more closely this morning from our text today. First of all, the elect exile's endurance is tied to the orientation of his soul. Notice three mindsets in verse 13, 15, and 17. Verse 13, therefore, preparing your minds for action 
and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Preparing your minds and being sober-minded. This is a description of a mindset or an orientation of the soul, if you will, that gives us strength to endure in testing. In the second one, verse 15, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. So be holy in your conduct, be sober in your mind. And then the third one, verse 17, and if you call on him as father who judges impartially, according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. So three ways to conduct ourselves with the fear of the Lord, holiness, and sobriety of mind. These are the orientations of the soul that Peter exhorts the church to entertain and to maintain. And by so doing, they will endure as elect exiles in a land that doesn't share necessarily their convictions and their worldview and often is openly hostile to their newfound faith. Number one, sober-minded. What does it mean to be sober-minded? Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, and then he goes on, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. To prepare your minds for action, action literally means, in the original language, to gird up the loins of your mind or your mental capacity. You see, uh, soldiers, before they would go into battle, they couldn't uh, move real efficiently, and they would often stumble and trip if they just ran in long, flowing robes. So you would gather what would otherwise be an impediment to your running swiftly and your mobility of action, and you would gird up your loins in so doing, and you would be prepared for the enemy. So it's an equipping metaphor. If the sword is in hand and the soldier has assumed his ready position, he is prepared to engage with the enemy on the battlefront. Uh, Peter is exhorting the church to do this in our minds, in our souls. To gird up the loins of our minds, that is to eliminate superfluous things, roadblocks to our efficiency in doing spiritual war. These, of course, would relate to those things that impede or would be stumbling blocks or get in our way. Things like lack of faith and the sufficiency of God's promises. Things like anxiety that can come and overwhelm us and plague our minds. Just open fear, things I've already mentioned in this sermon of things getting so dark and so intense that we will not stand. Eliminate those. Gird up the loins of your mind. Prepare your mind for action. And by doing so, you will stand in the day when your faith is tested. He goes on, preparing your minds for action. He continues with this admonition. Be sober-minded. Sobriety, of course, refers to clear thinking when your mental faculties are unimpeded by other influences. So everyone knows what it is, what it's like to be drunk um, you're under the influence of some other mind-altering, you know, uh, some mind-altering substance, let's say alcohol. And if you drink and drink and drink slowly, or, or could happen quite quickly, your regular thinking processes and faculties are suspended, and you begin to act foolishly. This is a drunken uh, state of mind, a suspension of judgment. It's an impediment to your ordinary faculties. And Peter is saying, do not become drunk with anything that might suspend your better judgment. We can become drunk on worldly thinking, the philosophies of the world, good-sounding theories that don't line up with the Scriptures, the supposed authority of science in an age 
where, you know, the authorities that are celebrated on the platforms of, our, of cultural influence include experts in academia or political pundits or of pagan philosophers or people teaching from the various Ivy League institutions of our land or prognosticators who uh, venture forth and uh, deem uh, through technology to find a way to increase the hope for humanity's future. These are nothing but babble-building a misguided, foolish enterprises, and if we consider them as uh, valuable and helpful, and if we are distracted by them, the sobriety of our mind will become affected, we'll be, and we will become drunk on the idolatry of our age. And Peter exhorts the church to gird up the loins of your mind, roll up the sleeves of your thinking, and be sober-minded, and reject those other influences that would suspend your judgment. He's encouraging the church to make, a, the, to make a sober assessment of their thinking and make sure that it is biblical and scriptural. Process things according to the Word of God. Dig deeply into His scriptures to understand the world, reality, His plan of salvation, and the state of man in the condition of sinfulness that we find ourselves in. These are the conditions on the battlefield of the Christian life that must be maintained if we are to survive. These are the means of grace that will equip us to have mental acuity, biblical wisdom, sound judgment. As the scriptures say in the book of Proverbs, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. That is to say, there is no sober-mindedness without a respect and a high value, high prioritization of the word of God. Mental acuity, sound judgment. And discernment must be exercised. Hebrews 5.14, by reason of constant practice, have your faculties uh, trained to discern both good and evil. We're advocating for, Peter is, spiritual, situational awareness, sound judgment, and this will serve as psychological and spiritual preparedness to last, to endure, and to be triumphant even. And advancing the cause of Christ even though we may be exiles in a land that does not share our convictions. Think of how the persecuted church has survived through the ages. How many of us have marveled over the church under duress in different areas of the world even today, and we think, how do they survive with a strong profession of faith under such extreme tests? These extreme tests include unimaginable physical and psychological trauma, that would include the tragic loss of ordinary sources of joy, hope, comfort, peace, and reassurance. Just in our natural way that we're wired as human beings in this fallen world, what are we most likely to lean on for joy, hope, comfort, peace, reassurance? Well, the affirmation of our peers, or the certainty of our paycheck, or the insurance company that can guarantee us a hope in a crisis. What happens when the tragedy or when the, uh, uh, when the trauma of persecution removes many, if not all, of these ordinary sources of joy, hope, comfort, peace, and reassurance. Well, if we don't have those things rooted in that which the enemy cannot steal, that is the orientation of our soul, sober-minded enough to find our comfort, our ultimate comfort, peace, and joy, and reassurance in the promise of the gospel, then we will be in real tough shape. However... If at the end of the day, we find that we are encouraged and built up and steadfast and founded upon the hope of Jesus Christ for our eternal salvation, they can steal all those creature comforts, 
but they cannot take away the true source of joy and hope eternal. Sometimes Peter is referred to as the apostle of hope. Why? Because in chapter 1, verse 3, there's this reference. He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. You see, if we have hope that is secured for us upon the resurrection of Jesus, that's something that cannot be taken away. Jesus has risen again, never to die again. He lives and breathes eternally interceding on behalf of the saints. Peter is called the apostle of hope because of references like this in verse 13. Being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And again, at the close of our passage, bracketing verses 13 through 21, so that your faith and hope are in God. Second orientation of the soul, and more quickly, because I want to refer you to a message recently preached from Psalm 99, where we expounded the holiness of the Lord. The orientation of the soul that prepares the elect exile to endure not only sober-mindedness, but also holiness. Again, verse 15, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. In the context of this orientation of the soul, a gospel displacement is occurring. In other words, if you pursue that which the Lord loves, and that which the gospel holds out as of highest value, it will displace other things. A pursuit and a passion for the beauties of salvation will force out other things that are wicked and corrupting, things that would hamper our ability to stand. Things like chapter 2, verse 1. So put away all malice, all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and slander. In other words... The holiness of God is illustrated in context by contrast. Instead of letting your soul gravitate, dwell on, and entertain these kinds of things, malice, deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander, think about the glories of Jesus Christ. Glories that are described in 1-4. We have an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are guarded through faith for a salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. Those are holy things. Those are things that are sacred and set apart, that are lofty, that echo the affections, the loves, and the desires of the Lord Himself, His beauties, and His glory. When we entertain these things, we push out things, like verse 18 says, knowing that you are ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers. So feudal ways inherited from our forefathers, those would be the corrupting influences. The holy things would be the things of the gospel. The things that have to do with the precious blood of Jesus Christ. A reference in context to the holiness of the price of our redemption that we'll cover in short order. Suffice it to say that the orientation of the soul that is increasingly enthralled with God, what God celebrates, with what He uh, loves and holds forth as valuable in His Scripture, will prepare us to stand in our time of exile. Sober-mindedness, holiness, thirdly, fear. Verse 17, if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear through the time of your exile. There is to be a healthy reverence. There is to be a healthy fear of the Lord. There is to be a seriousness about our faith. There is to be something of an honor that we sense when we approach the things of God that causes our spirit to quiet 
to set aside that which would be distracting and to reserve a time and our attention and our affections for that which deserves a place of prominence, that which is enthroned upon the values of our souls. All this is related to the fear of the Lord. Conduct yourselves with fear. Orient your souls to understand that God is a Father who doesn't just give you all the candy that you want, who isn't a slot machine for your greatest desires, the way your flesh defines. But He is a Father who judges impartially. He is a good dad. Hebrews 12 tells us that a father who loves his children won't let them do whatever they want, but will discipline them because of his love for them. And Hebrews 12 goes on to tell us that we have a father like this, and, in, and perfectly so, in our Lord. And our Lord disciplines us, and for a time it seems grievous, but that discipline yields a peaceable fruit of righteousness for those who are trained by it. This is a similar idea that Peter points to in, this, in our verses today. If you call upon him as Father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. In other words, respect God your Father the way you would a good, strict Father who loves his children and holds a strong line of expectation for them in order to discipline them and to nurture them in the fear and admonition of the Lord, the discipline and instruction of the Holy One. Our God is a judge, but He is one who, and the blood of Jesus Christ has covered the condemnation of our sins. In other words, we could sum up the fear of the Lord as a believer in this way. This is a quote from my study Bible. Christians will not be condemned for their sins, but they will be judged for their deeds. Further explanation of this is in 1 Corinthians 3, 12 through 15, where we are encouraged to pursue a life in accordance with with our Christianity, with what God has called us to do. And as we do so, we will accrue for ourselves treasures that can't be destroyed by fire. The old man is associated with things that, like wood, hay, and straw, and when that trial, they will not pass a trial by fire. But those righteous deeds that God calls us to after we are born again, they don't secure for us our salvation, but they are fruit that should be entertained, that should be pursued. And when we fear the Lord we understand that there's a seriousness to our walk with the Lord. And it begins to stir us to love and to good works. And we have a passion to take seriously our walk with the Lord, that we might have something to show for His mighty work on our behalf. We are saved by grace, and grace alone, through Christ's work alone, but we are saved unto something, unto the fear and the respectful service of the Lord in His kingdom, understanding that our Father disciplines and corrects us to shape us and change us via sanctification into uh, people who will produce works for His glory. So the elect exile endurance is tied to this orientation of the soul, sober-mindedness, holiness, and fear. Second major point this morning, sufficient motive forces, drawing inspiration, drawing motivation from biblical sources. Think of Isaiah chapter 12. We preach on this around the turn of the year. Isaiah 12, the prophet exhorts uh, the hearer, the reader, to draw deeply of the water from the wells of salvation. You might ask yourself, what is the water of the wells of salvation? Where it's three examples in our text today. Here's some water from the well of salvation in verse 13. 
Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. You can almost hear that water, that refreshing resources from the well of salvation flooding your soul in those words. Set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. A, submit, a sufficient motive source, a sufficient water or, or well from which to draw water, to draw inspiration and encouragement from in our difficult walk in this world following Christ our Lord is the promise of forthcoming grace. Ours is a hope that is grounded on grace upon grace and even more grace to be revealed in the future. Notice what Peter's already said in verse 4. Verse 3, well, he, it says, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Verse 4, To an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. We have just a taste. I mean, it is a, it's a glorious taste. We have tasted the forgiveness of our sins. We have tasted of the reassuring, uh, the reassuring presence and spirit of God that assures us that in Christ our sins are washed away. But there is more grace still on the horizon for us as believers, saint, in this room, within the hearing of this message. We are saved unto an inheritance that we will gain upon our entrance into the next life. It is an inheritance that is imperishable. It cannot be destroyed. It will not wither, rot, or fail. It is undefiled. It cannot be uh, destroyed or marred in any way by the forces of this world. It's unfading. It only grows in glory and strength. It is kept in heaven for you. No enemy of our souls can burst into heaven and steal it. It is uh, guarded by God's power himself. And if God sets his power to guard something, do you think anyone will be able to sneak past his means to guard and protect what he has secured for us? Absolutely not. Through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed at the last time. There is sufficient motive force in thinking about, sending your mind upon, expecting, just like the saints did of old, what greater glory still await us because of the salvation that God has given us and the promises that are yet on the horizon. Now, let me tell you by way of application and contrast that this does not necessarily accord with the more popular notions of salvation today. Popular modern concepts of salvation, popular modern theologies tend to limit the gospel to something like this. Jesus' work of human solidarity for the goal of human flourishing. Now, what is human solidarity? Identifying with humanity. In other words, people get... Uh, are more apt to proclaim and rest upon the joys as if it were sufficient. Well, that Jesus identified with us as humans in order to cause us to flourish. Now, there is some truth to that notion. But if you think that's the highest thing, if you think that's the most glorious pinnacle of the grace of salvation, Jesus becoming like us to make us flourish then you have missed the greater portion of the promises of God. God is most glorified 
uh, or, God, or we are most satisfied, as the confessions say, when, we are, when God is most glorified in us. And the glories of God that are yet on the horizon promise a salvation that is so far beyond a little bit better circumstances in this life. And they hold out hope for a reconstituted environment entirely where the whole of the created realm will be transformed and reconciled to give Him praise and glory. And do you think the human being will be celebrated in the new heavens and new earth? Do you think you and your uh, hopes and desires, your dreams and ambitions will be the most important theme in the glorious future of heaven? Absolutely not. Jesus Christ will shine as bright as the sun, commanding the attention of all the faithful. Jesus Christ, our conquering Savior, our triumphant Lord, will spread a feast before all the elect at the marriage supper of the Lamb. Jesus Christ, our Savior and Lord, as history marches on, will defeat His every last enemy, including death itself, to show that He is powerful and glorious. And He is the only one in heaven who is to be worshipped. And we will cast our crowns if we should be blessed to have one before his throne and join the elders saying, worthy is the lamb. And the focus and the attention and the direction and the glory will be offered to him and him alone. We will only thank the Lord that he has given us a voice and he has given us rewards on account of the good works that we have done so that we might have something to offer when we are so compelled by the revelation of his glory that we must give him our praises that we must give him the offerings that he deserves that he deserves and this is the forthcoming grace of a glory prepared for us this is the inheritance of an imperishable undefiled and un- unfading guarded kept in heaven future for us that is a sufficient source of a hope for us that we can draw inspiration from and thereby survive a testing in between now and then so saints Draw deeply from the waters of this well of salvation, the grace on the horizon that will be revealed. We, the last message we preached, or two messages ago from this passage, I think the title was Full Scale Salvation. Think of the full scale salvation promised to us in glory and draw great inspiration. Secondly, the holiness of God, sufficient motive force. On chapter 1, again, verse 14, As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, there's your source of inspiration, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. In the Old Covenant, this is a citation, the book of Leviticus, chapter 11, a citation drawn directly from the law, which anticipates things to come. In Leviticus 11, verse 44, we have these instructions as to the sacrificial system and the ideas that surround it. Uh, We'll go to 43. You shall not make yourselves detestable with any swarming thing that swarms, and you shall not defile yourselves with them and become unclean through them. Verse 44, for I am the Lord your God. Consecrate yourselves, therefore, and be holy as I am holy. You shall not defile yourself with any swarming thing that crawls on the ground. These In the law, there was symbolic weight to that which would defile a person. And in this instance, the things that are mentioned are creepy, crawly, swarming things, like little bugs and uh, you know, spiders, grub worms, flies, maggots. You know, all of us almost have this visceral response to some of those. 
And we're like, ew, you know, and you want to, if there's bugs crawling all over, your impulse is to brush them off. You want to consecrate yourself from a whole, uh, you know, rotted fish full of maggots. No one is going to lay down on the beach, you know, in a pile of dead fish swarming with maggots and just lay there and say, what a nice day, isn't that sunshine bright? No, you, you would get yourself away from that situation because these creepy crawly creatures represent even in our sensibility something that is detestable and gross. And this is the way we are to view the things of the old life, the sin nature or the distractions or the things that the enemy holds out to captivate our attention. He shows you the allure of fame, and you should see maggots. He shows you the allure of materialism, and you should see, again, uh, earthworms and crawly things and uh, larvae and maggots and so forth. That's the picture there in the Old Covenant. In other words, just as the people were called to put away these things that are associated with decomposition and death as a picture and a symbol to separate themselves unto the Lord, so we see the fulfillment and the fullness of this in the new covenant. Be holy for I am holy. We are to be attracted to and drawn to the set-apartness, the exclusivity, the beauty, the purity, the power, and the glory of the Lord. And draw from this great inspiration. Again, recall a recent sermon, Psalm 99, where we proclaimed from that psalm that our God is holy. Verses like the passages like that can provide for us sufficient motive to stand in a day of testing as an elect exile. And then the third source of, uh, of inspiration is our ransom price. Verse 18, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, was made manifest in the last times for your sake, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. So you notice that we are to be moved, we are to draw inspiration from, that we are to be encouraged by how precious the ransom price is that paid for our salvation. We were, not pay or we were not saved or ransomed, purchased back by the feudal ways or from the feudal ways by anything less than the precious blood of Jesus Christ. What are the lesser things that are illustrated here by contrast, silver and gold? Think of the things that the world will do for the promise of riches. In, I think it's Job 28, the picture of pursuing treasure from deep within the ground is used as a metaphor. Man so values silver and gold that he will risk his own life to create a deep mine to follow that vein of ore. And the riches that are promised by these rare elements are a picture of value from time immemorial up through today. As the economy, you know, flounders and is uncertain, the price of gold skyrockets. Why? Because silver and gold represent something of value. They are a symbol of worth and wealth to us in our day. But these are nothing. It is no accident that the highest things of highest value historically among men is used in contradistinction to the precious blood of Jesus Christ. Why? Because it's to tell us this, that the precious blood of Jesus is so much more precious 
than anything else that you can imagine of worthy value, that not even silver or gold can compare to the glories of Jesus Christ and the power and the value of His shed blood for our sin. Think of how valuable the shed blood of Jesus Christ is for us. Before us today are the communion elements. Hey kids, a question for you again. What does the bread remind us of, young people? The body of? And young people, what does the juice remind us of? That's right. Before us we have, represented here, the most precious commodity, if you will, in all of the universe. There will never be anything more valuable in all of the universe, now in the future or forever, to us than the shed blood of Jesus Christ. Because this is the only thing which can satisfy the demands of sin and its price. It's either that, that, I should say it's either that or hell itself. The only way to escape the wages of sin is something extremely precious, extremely value, valuable. And that extreme valuable thing that causes us to escape the wages of sin is the precious blood of Jesus Christ. Consider the worth and the value of the ransom price that was paid for the salvation of your soul. And consider that as we partake of communion and in a few moments. Finally, this morning, elect exiles, their endurance is tied to the orientation of their soul, sober-mindedness, holiness, fear. It's tied to motives, sufficient inspiration, drawn from forthcoming grace, the holiness of God, and a ransom price. But finally, Peter hits the nail on the head, drives his point home by pointing to the object of our faith. That is that which our faith is fixed upon, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Consider Him. The elect exile's endurance is tied to Jesus Christ. Ultimately, He is the object of our faith. He, it says in verse 20, was foreknown, speaking of Christ, of course. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for your sake, who through Him are believers in God, who raised Him from the dead and gave Him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. We understand in sound theological service, uh, circles that faith is justified by its object. Now, this is important to remember because we live in a time where anyone, any and everyone's faith might be valued. Have you ever heard someone say, oh, those devoted you know, Mormons or Jehovah's Witnesses, they knock on the door. You know, I don't agree with their practices, but these devout Muslims, they memorize the whole Koran. And we think that faith, in these instances, what it's uh, evidencing is the notion that faith is justified by its sincerity. Uh, sincerity is noble. And faith is really an arbitrary thing. It just matters that you're sincere. This is false. Faith is not an arbitrary thing. Faith is justified by its object. That is to say, the only faith that is of value, the only faith that is noble, the only faith that is truly the gift of God, the way the Scriptures describe it, is faith in someone. Not anyone, only one. Faith in Jesus Christ. Christ, the spotless Lamb, is the object of our faith. It says that He, with His precious blood, like that of a spotless lamb, without, or like that of a lamb without blemish or spot, is the focus and the attention and commands as the object of our faith 
the, uh, the attention of the believers who endure. Christ is the spotless lamb. On your own time, further reference could be made to Leviticus chapter 22, verses 18 through 22. And similar to what we referenced before, be holy as I am holy, we have in the context of the law this idea of a spotless, spotless and blemishless, if you will, sacrifice. Malachi 1, 6-14, the people were bringing inferior sacrifices. Their worship was compromised. They weren't offering to the Lord. They weren't focusing their hope on the pure, and that which the pure, spotless lamb represented. And so they were in trouble. What is the object of our faith? The only source, ultimately, that will cause us to endure during times of testing? What is the key to exile living in a hostile society? It is focusing on the object of our faith, Christ, the spotless lamb. Christ, the spotless lamb, Christ surpassing time. Verse 20, he was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for your sake. Now, this verse indicates to us the glorious plan, the sovereignty of God, the plan of salvation that was conceived in the mind of the Lord and agreed upon by the members of the Trinity was there from eternity past in the mind of the Almighty. This is not a crisis management situation. This is not a plan B. This is not an afterthought. This is not something that God rushed to accomplish to find a last-ditch effort to save man. No. He, Christ, was foreknown before the foundation of the world. God is not bound by time. He's not a victim of time. He is not contingent on time. He surpasses time. The things that take place in history take place according to His sovereign decree, even the slaughter of His own Son at the hands of sinful men. Was this not what the disciples confessed in Acts chapter 4? That all these people were gathered according to your predestination, your ordination. And they crucified the Son of God in that. They committed the greatest sin of history, you could say, but they also, acquired, they also accomplished in that act the greatest saving act of history. The spotless lamb was slaughtered by sinful men, and by that sacrifice, we are redeemed. Only God could plan something as amazing and glorious like this. Only God could redeem the most horrible of sins unto the very means whereby the most horrible of sinners could be saved. Why? Because Christ surpasses time. He is Lord of history. He is Lord of salvation. He is Lord of reconciliation. He is Lord of glory. He is Lord of the future. He is Lord of this world. He's the Lord of the nations. He received them as, in his, as his inheritance, according to Psalm 2 and Daniel 7, upon his ascension. Ask of me and I will give of you the nations. And so Christ is Lord, surpassing time, surpassing authorities. By him, every tongue must confess, every knee must bow, that he is Lord to the glory of the Father. He is King of kings. He is Lord of lords. This is Christ, the spotless lamb, Christ surpassing time, Christ the object of our faith, and even Christ surpassing death. Finally, this morning, we visit verse 21, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. If you truly believe that your Savior, who shed his blood to pay for your sins, rose from the dead by the same spirit that abides in you as his child, what do you have to fear? Could the darkness of our hour unseat your own hope of an eternal glorious future? Never. Christ surpasses death. The scriptures speak, of course, 
in the, in the case of death, as our ultimate and the last and the final enemy. If Christ has defeated this enemy, if Christ's blood and through His resurrection, He can cause His people to transcend death, to surpass it, to move beyond it, to be resurrected, then we certainly have nothing to fear. This is a message to the elect exiles. Do you ever feel like an elect exile? Have you felt like one this week? If you're like me, you certainly have. So where do you go in times of anxiousness, anxiety, worry, concern, fear, trepidation? You go to the Scriptures. You go to 1 Peter. And you realize that our endurance as exiles is tied to an orientation of the soul that is sober-minded when we set our mind to right according to the Scripture's teaching, that pursues holiness because our God is sacred and set apart, holy and beautiful in the sum of His being, that fears Him because He uh, holds out discipline for those whom He loves, that has forthcoming grace for us on the horizon, uh, uh, inheritance, unperishable, undefi- imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. That His holiness is a sufficient source of motivation. That His ransom price is the most precious commodity of all. And Christ, as the object of our faith, is an absolutely spotless, sufficient sacrifice to cover our sin. And He, the sum of His being, in His act on Calvary, His resurrection and ascension surpassed time and surpassed death. Meditate upon these sources of inspiration, saint, and watch the Holy Spirit keep you until the day that you die or the day of His return. Let us transition in prayer. O Lord, we thank You for the hope of Christ that is found in Your Scriptures. We thank You for the hope of Christ that is found even in ourselves and our soul as You have given us by Your sovereign power the grace to believe. Lord, I pray this morning as those who are believers in this room partake at Your table, that You would reinforce and strengthen our confession as we remember that just as tangibly as this bread is tasted on our tongue, just as tangibly as this juice is tasted on our lips, that Jesus Christ came in time and shed His real human body, though fully God, for our, or shed His real human blood for our sins, and His real human body was broken for our transgressions. And through these means, we have access through the veil, the torn veil, through His flesh, as it were, into the presence of a holy God. Remind us of these things that we might stand in the day of testing and trial to the praise of your great name. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.